demand equality. We demand justice. The revolution will not be televised. Action speaks louder than words, and we got that action. Let's go. I want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the No Justice, No Peace podcast with Racial Justice Now. I'm your co-host, H.A. Jabbar, and I'm here with RJN Project Director, Carolyn Lowry, and we have a powerful show for you today with this great giant of a young brother, Ja'Cory Arthur, Louisville, Kentucky's own Ja'Cory Arthur, that is the, the youngest elected official in the history in the history of Louisville, Kentucky. And so we're so proud of this young brother because he's not just a, a, a up and coming politician, but he's also an educator. He's also a professor. He's also a father. And so he's dealing on the ground with all of the drama going on around the life of our beautiful sister, Brianna Taylor. And so we have a powerful show. Our sister Carolyn Lowry is here with us today, a powerful veteran organizer. We got some great questions for this young man. So tune in, stay tuned, get out your pens and pencils because he's got some jewels for you. Mentally, like, I don't know what's going on in Kentucky. I think that's below the Mason-Dixon line. So I want you to fill us in. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of the country, we don't know a lot about Kentucky. Louisville, that's not really on our map like that. You know what I mean? So so tell our listeners, you know, we, we do this education work. I know you're an educator. We want to really hear about what it's like in Kentucky. You know, paint a picture for us. What's, what's going on there? Is it is it rule? Is Louisville, I know there was a lot of jobs there at one point. Is it not like that now? Fill us in with, you know, the KY or Louisville or the Ville or, you know, what that's like. Fill, fill me in. That's a big question. <laughs> Kentucky historically has not been considered a Southern state because it was not a part of the Confederacy. But because it was not a part of the Confederacy, Kentucky didn't necessarily have to abide by certain regulations as they pertain to slavery. And a perfect example is you're around the same age as as my mother. She was born in 1976. Kentucky didn't legally abolish slavery until 1976. Wow. So my mother was a few months off of, of legally, you know, being born into slavery. And what that means for our state is really symbolic of, of everything, because as much as we try to claim that we're not a part of the South or the Confederacy, you know, our ancestors didn't stop in Louisville when they were trying to escape the freedom. They had to run across the Ohio River. They had to run to Indiana. And even then, there were slave patrols, a.k.a. police departments, that still would capture and return and sell them back. Louisville had one of the largest slave ports in the country because of our proximity with the Ohio River. Down by the riverside was very much so a narrative of of being sold through Louisville and being sold down that river, down the Mississippi and down through the Gulf. Louisville, I have said in media for the past few months, is the capital of American racism. 
Jim Crow, the black man, the Negro, the ex-slave, Jim Crow lived in Louisville and his quote unquote master saw him singing and dancing and he mimicked it and he painted his face black and then he traveled the country mimicking Mr. Jim Crow. And then we eventually, you know, went on to have Jim Crow laws and minstrel shows. Louisville was on the forefront of that, of exclusion from something such as the Kentucky Derby, which is the longest running sports event in the world, the largest sports event in the world. And half of the first 25 races, over half, were won by us. By 1922, we were banned from racing in the Derby. Right. And when you fast forward to the 90s and the early 2000s, we are banned from celebrating Derby. We used to have our own version of Freaknik right here in Louisville on West Broadway, where all the black folk live. It was called Broadway Cruising. It was essentially a car show street festival. The city government banned us from having this street festival. You couldn't even leave your neighborhood unless you had written permission. When was it shut down? Like towards the later, mid, early 2000s, as far as it was a process because they shut down that cruising. They shut down a number of other festivals that happened around the cruising. But even before then, we were Jim Crowed out of the Derby in itself by 1922, even though we won most of the Derbies before then. We didn't see any black people, any black jockeys in the Kentucky Derby until closer to that that 2000 when we started getting banned out again. So it was like, we got access to race, but now y'all can't celebrate. Derby brings in about half a billion dollars a year. Now it's different this year because of COVID, but half a billion dollars a year. There's no data to, to back this, but I'm willing to bet we barely get a million that comes to the black community, that comes to black businesses because we're largely excluded from participating in Derby festivities. So Louisville in itself, I would say is less of a, of a reflection of Kentucky uh, because Louisville's kind of like its own island and Louisville's more of a reflection of America in itself. I mean, there's one family here of, of 25 people that have more wealth than all the black people combined. 25 people got more wealth than, you know, 70, 80,000 people in this city combined. That doesn't make any sense. The same few families have their names on all of the buildings, have all of the uh, philanthropic organizations. They fund everything. They pay for everything. We we really run the city based on their wallets. Meanwhile, we also run the city based on our failure. Our failure is like fuel for the success of others in this city. And we built this city. Plantations used to send our ancestors to the, the city to plant crops, build roads and build houses before they even got here. And then they would eventually come, of course, and settle. But yeah, Louisville's a slave city. It's ran by plantation capitalism and plantation dynasties. So how did um, Blacks win in the horse races? Were they put in by white people? Were they racing for themselves? I, I imagine winning that race was, um, there was prize money. Were those, were they doing it for the benefit of others or? The black jockeys had careers. And I only know this, I was writing a piece on the Kentucky Derby and connecting that history. 
they had these as careers, and in some cases, it was all they had because there was a brother, I forgot his name, I'm going to send it to you later. Well, there were two brothers, actually. One killed himself, like blew his brains out from the fact that he was no longer allowed to practice his profession and couldn't make a living. And then another drank himself to death. So I would say this was very much so something that they lived for and also made a living off of. I was there in about 2000, I think it was 2005, right before the Derby. I left, I think I left a day or two before and I was there doing clinical trials and even through just doing the clinical trial where some of the things that you're talking about came up um, around celebration, not being able to celebrate. The only parties and everything that were there were, were in the white part of Louisville. And I don't know the city very well. I've only been there once. There was a real sense of, there was anger and there was a sense of resignation when I was there with the, the Black folk that I had talked to. You adding this context makes, this is really interesting because to me, it goes to the parts of how this country has been able to minimize us. You know, this is a very rich history. It's just one city and one state that has made significant impact in our country. But these are the methods that are used to try to, again, diminish us. And I think that bringing a light to that is important, especially in this movement work, because what we focus on are the things like the death and the incarceration and the disparities. But it's the the removal and the disconnection of our culture and our ability to celebrate and our ability to form community that I think is more detrimental. Mm -hmm. It goes back to why why you could argue that in the 60s, integration, one, never really happened, but two, wasn't necessarily a benefit for us. And I say never really happened because it was more of desegregation. Yeah. Because exactly. our, our neighborhoods are still very much so separate and unequal. Mm -hmm. But I think MLK said this, like, what good is, is being able to sit at your lunch counter if, if I can't afford to eat your food? Or what good is you saying, okay, now you can go to the Derby if I can't afford to go to the Derby. So, Jacoy, what is the the main economic engine uh, of Louisville and the state of Kentucky? It's definitely the downtown business district that I'll actually be representing on council. I'll represent the downtown business district and all of the surrounding neighborhoods Kentucky thrives off, off of the property taxes from downtown, from many of the events that happen, including the Derby and otherwise. But when you break down even my district in itself, the economy is not accessible for everyone. And by that, I mean, you know, your economy, you should be able to live off of it. You should be able to take care of your family, you know, pay your bills and do what you need to do. Live the, the quote unquote American dream. But when you look at the average income in Louisville, it's about 48000 And then when you zoom out to the different neighborhoods of Louisville, in my neighborhood, the average income is, is about 15000 In some pockets, it dips to even like 9000 You can't live off of that. It's virtually impossible. And what I love hearing people talk about as far as like black people not coming up or not being able to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. Well, people say, uh, like they share that, like you need financial literacy. 
we ain't got nothing and we still get by. We are the most financially literate folks in history because the fact that you can live off of $15,000 is like, you must know magic. You got to know magic. <laughs> so we do know magic, though. And that's something else, though, we got to remember. This is our spirituality. We are magic. And we've had to be. But you're, you're absolutely right. Consistently. So everybody says that, you know, education is supposed to be the great, you know, connector to, like you said, bootstrapping and pulling yourselves up. What's the uh, education status? Like what, what inspired you to get into education? And tell us a little bit about your education career. Well, I got into education because I felt a responsibility to return the favor to teachers that I had. And these were actually white teachers who just wanted to me to grow to my full potential, being in school programs, being in my band, being in uh, the, the school drumline, the percussion ensemble, eventually being a leader of my school's marching band, the drum major. Those opportunities kept me out of the streets, which kept me out of the, the prison yard, kept me out of the graveyard. And realizing the significance of those opportunities inspired me to want to give those opportunities to other kids who did look like me, who did come from where I came from. So that's definitely why I got into education. It's also why I got out of education. I was a full-time teacher in our public school system. And I left for quite a few reasons, but I left because I was in a predominantly white school. I was one of three black people on staff. Now there's no black people on that, on that staff at all, but I was discriminated against at levels that really discouraged me from being a part of the public school system. My certification was called into question on whether or not I should be a teacher. My uh, credentials were called into question. It was it was a lot of nonsense that I, I didn't have time to deal with. Like these are grown white women that have been teaching for decades and decades and decades. And you're coming at me because I'm confident and smart in my abilities to do not just as a, a good a job as you are doing, but even better. And I got the favorite class. Everybody want to come to Mr. Arthur's class. So, <laughs> so there was a whole lot of uh, racially motivated discrimination going on in the public school system. So I like to say I, I jumped out of the nest so I could fly. And since leaving the public school system, I've been able to continue my freelance work, but at a, at a higher level, traveling to schools around the district, targeting the black schools, making sure I, I visit them the most to do guest lectures and workshops and after school programs. And that I would say radicalized me to be to where I am today politically, because it didn't matter what school I went to, as long as it had a, a high black population, it had a high poverty population, it had a high failing population, a high sus suspension population, free and reduced lunch population. And I realized this issue is not really about education. It's bigger than that. Much bigger. It's about so much more outside of this school building. Because before you even get to that school building in the morning, if you couldn't sleep last night because you were up because of the gunshots or you didn't have a healthy meal last night or the morning before you went to school, or if your mother's working two, three jobs to put food on the table, if your daddy's locked up, if your brother is dead and gone, you are dealing with so much trauma before you even step foot in that door, you're already set up to fail. Mm -hmm. And everything that exists through those doors is just going to make it even worse. Exactly. And even before you qualify to go to school, before you get to go to kindergarten, your early childhood already sets you up mm -hmm. to fail. 
And on the opposite end of that spectrum, when you look at college, which now I'm, I'm fortunate enough to teach at our local HBCU, I'm a professor at Simmons College of Kentucky, the only school to make a, a comeback in history, lost its original campus yeah. and then got its original campus and came back and got accredited again. I'm at an HBCU now. I'm realizing even on the opposite end of the education spectrum, just how it's designed for us to fail, how many colleges target our brothers and sisters with decree programs that they will never get jobs in and that they just continue the cycle of poverty because you just pulled out all these student loans. In Kentucky, it's about a 30% of some college rate as far as people who go to college. Black people are 36%. We go to college at a higher rate, but we're still the most homeless, most incarcerated, most least wealth having group in the state. And it's because there's a report Dr. Sandy Darity from Duke University and a number of other economists and lawyers, they did 10 myths to closing the racial wealth gap and what we get wrong about closing the racial wealth gap. And on that report, it talks about educational attainment. I can have all the degrees in the world. What that report showed is that a black family headed up by somebody with a college degree still has less wealth than a white family who doesn't even have a high school diploma. And I say that as someone who I got my master's by age 22, but where I'm from, the Parkland neighborhood, the graduate degree percentage is zero percent. I'm a unicorn like that's virtually non-existent in, in our community. And it doesn't matter how many schools I go into. I'm usually the only black male in those schools. It doesn't matter, like as a musician, how many orchestras I perform with across this country. I'm usually the only black person on stage. Mm -hmm. So like our individual success has never reflected the collective. And a lot of people don't realize that. And when I'm in spaces, you know, sharing that reality check, people are, are taken aback because I'm supposed to be grateful that I'm right. the Negro that, that, that got my degrees right. and I'm the Negro that gets to perform around the world and that gets to teach kids. No, I'm not grateful until all of us have access to these opportunities and more. That's when I'll be somewhat grateful. But until then, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to shout it from the top of a mountain. They will never hear the end of the systematic oppression that caused our depression and regression in this country. I will never let that go. I will never let that down. It is my responsibility to make sure that I, I speak up and say something. Because if it wasn't for the Moors before me, if it wasn't for the ancestors before me who did that, who put that stake in the dirt, I wouldn't be here today to even be talking to y'all. I say. Oh, man, it's good. We're here with Ja'Cory Arthur on all things education justice. It's getting good. Come on, share with us a little bit about how you were that 1%. How did you uh, get a master's degree by 22? We know it's possible now. I can tell my son and my daughter, shit, it's possible that you can get a master's degree at 22 and be the first elected or first youngest in the city to get elected. So it is possible. We are black magic. We can't do the unthinkable. Why? Because Ja'Cory Arthur has just proven it. Feel us in, Ja'Cory, how we get these things done. And Ja'Cory, I also want to hear about some of the strategies around resilience that you that helped you get there, too. Honestly, I would say it was a combination of personal integrity mm -hmm. and just to keep it real with y'all, white acceptance. Yep. And I don't want to call it luck. I will call it spiritual divineness, <laughs> because 
I mean, I put in 10,000 hours of like practice and study time, bare minimum 10,000 hours to, to get through college. You must have read Tipping Point. <laughs> no, but it's not like I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I put in like hours. all I did was just work, 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 work. What was required of me and then what wasn't required of me. I went the extra mile to make sure that I had teaching experience outside of student teaching. A lot of folks, they go into education and they student teach and that's like their first time where they like get to get in front of students. The best way to learn to be a teacher is to be a teacher. So like I was taking private lesson gigs and doing workshops and teaching camps every year that I was in college. And that helped push me across that finish line more than anything. But the white acceptance piece, I really would say this about any of us in this country. I don't care who it is because white people own everything and they got all the wealth. It takes a level of white acceptance for you to to break the mold in a lot of cases. I had a professor named Dr. Greg Byrne, white man. If it weren't for him, I don't know if I would have had the resilience that I had to push through college because when all the odds were against me and I had professors taking bets on when I would drop out or when I was like threatened to be kicked out of school, lose my scholarship, X, Y, and Z. He, as my percussion professor and as as a mentor in college, basically was just like, man, be yourself, do what you do best and do it well. And don't worry about what they're talking about. I got your back. And I'm so grateful for him because in the, in the, in the, the music school, the music conservatory, I was one of a handful of black kids out of like 300, 300 students. I was like, when we talk about minority, I was a minority minority. <laughs> it was, it was a handful of us, like three or four of us. And I'm fortunate enough to graduate on a Sunday and start my first teaching job the next day on a Monday at that school that I, that I alluded to and talked about earlier. But, but as I said, I mean, we are, are really just set up to fail from, from early on. I mean, the bottom, the bottom five schools in the state of Kentucky are all in Louisville, which is sad in itself, but they're all also in the West end of Louisville and they're all predominantly black. And the worst school of all of them, as far as performance goes, is Maupin Elementary, which used to be Parkland Elementary. Mm-hmm. Parkland is the neighborhood that I was born and raised in. My, a lot of my family still lives in. That's also the same neighborhood where Muhammad Ali is from. Mm-hmm. And Parkland, I would say, is a fine example of miseducation because it changed from Parkland Elementary to Maupin Elementary. And I spent you know a few years there before I got bused to a different school. And the years I spent at Maupin, even like the decades after as an adult, I never knew who Maupin was. Milbert T. Maupin, the first brother to be the superintendent of our public school system or to have a job in our public school's central office, the first person to be in charge of the education association. And some of these accolades ain't even the first black person. They're just the first person, period. But I never knew that going to school. So it's going to take it's going to take the Maupins of the world, the Mies of the world, the, the educators who are normally just not seeing the unicorns to be in front of our children, not only teaching them the right history, but showing them the right way to, to make a better future. Let me ask you something. I've been thinking about a lot. You talked a little bit about the differences between desegregation, integration and segregation. And I've been thinking a lot about the impacts of this, particularly in education. Something I see of here, I live in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, and 
It's a different demographic than Louisville, I believe, I'm sure of actually. And what I see a lot of is Black kids not being edified in their culture and their Blackness when they are in communities that are predominantly white. What's been your experience about that? What have you seen? What have you experienced? You know, I, I, I'm speaking about this as someone who went to mostly white schools, lived in a mostly white neighborhood, and I see the difference between my colleagues and friends who grew up in Black neighborhoods or went to Black schools or had Black teachers about how they feel about themselves. There's some edification that happened in the Black community that they have. It seems like it's been part of their growing up. Have you seen anything of that sort, particularly your experience being in white schools and and communities that are white? Well, you can't be yourself if you can't see yourself. Mm -hmm. And what was so important about me being being at that predominantly white school when I first got my full time job was that our small group of, of black kids finally saw themselves. Finally. Some of them were bused from across town and some of them lived in that area, but they finally saw themselves and they finally identify with school in a completely different way. Yeah. Because when I was coming up or when anybody's coming up, if you're going to a school system that doesn't look like you, whether it's the kids or the teachers or both, what does that do for your level of desire to even go to school? And right. even furthermore, even succeed in school, especially when the curriculum is, is set up for you to, to really hate yourself, yes. to not know who you are. I think that attributes to the, to the education achievement gap more than anything, because you're teaching someone that you don't know and you're learning from someone that you don't know. It just creates a disaster of a situation for, for little black kids trying to trying to come up and, and be somebody. And you add the fact that we deal with all the trauma we deal with outside of the school, but educationally, before we even get to kindergarten, we're already in a lot of cases behind. Yeah. It's just a, a like a tornado of issues that exists. But yeah, if, when the representation lacks, I mean, there's been so many studies, countless studies that shows like more black teachers that the black kids have, the better they do. Yeah, that's true for sure. I can't imagine where I would be if I had black teachers. I had a couple. I think about that all the time. I had a couple black teachers. I think about that all the time. Like where, what would that have looked like in my life if that had been the case? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because right now in Montgomery County and in a couple of surrounding counties, we're having conversations around changing the boundaries in our school system as if that is going to help or really support making the achievement gap smaller. And I'm really troubled by this, by the assumption that diversity helps students and helps all students and makes everyone's well-being and experience better. I, I can't get there yet. <laughs> I can't get there yet, particularly if we're not doing things to fortify the experiences of Black kids in our schools and having them have experiences that are culturally relevant to them. So I, I appreciate your thoughts on this. Well, a, a lot of people don't def define diversity. <laughs> It's like, and it's almost like a, a carrot being dangled in front of us. Yeah. Because to some people, diversity means, okay, we got one black person right. out of a hundred. Right. Or we have X amount of women versus men, or we have X amount of ages, or we have X amount of ethnicities and nationalities. Diversity means all sorts. Yeah. And 
when people are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are buzzwords now for like organizations and institutions, it's just very loosey goosey and too ambiguous for us to get excited and celebrate it. Because oftentimes when people talk about diversity, that scares me because I'm like, damn. Terrifies me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it does. Well, well, now you're in a situation where black people already had a small piece of the pie. But when you talk about diversity, that means our pie is going to get cut up even smaller. Because yeah. now you went from us to let's add in the Asian groups and let's add in the Hispanic groups and let's add in the LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Let's add in every other group that isn't a straight white man. We just saw it happen in Louisville where we had um, some legislation passed that included LGBTQ business owners on uh, minority contracts. Now, uh, as I said, our pie was already small and there's very clearly evidence and historical points of us being excluded from business practices and contracts. We know that there's no argument in that. I would like to know where the evidence shows that our Asian brothers and sisters were excluded. Our Hispanic brothers and sisters were excluded. Our LGBTQ brothers and sisters were excluded because we had Jim Crow. Like, obviously, we were excluded. We were literally legally legally not allowed to do business with white folk. Right now, we are allowed to do business with white folk. Oh, and also we're going to carve out these areas for other people who came here after Jim Crow or who, who felt like they were identified as minorities after Jim Crow. You got white men, just because they identify as gay, now considered minorities. Now, I'm not saying none of that is a problem. I'm not giving my opinion. I'm just saying, how do you define diversity? And who, do you, who, who are you diversifying for, for the benefit or of and for? I got Hispanic brothers and sisters hit me up criticizing me saying, what are you going to do for the, the large Hispanic community you got? Our district is less than 2% Hispanic. What are you talking about the large Hispanic community? And they, don't, they never voted. And I know because I got the info of who's voted in the past. And I want to serve them, but y'all got to come and talk to me. You don't talk to someone about serving you from a place of, of combativeness. You don't attack me and say, I'm not serving your population. I don't know where your population is. I've never talked to your population. But my number's out there, my email's out there. You can hit me up whenever. Our district was majority Black. I don't know how that's changed now because the census data I just got is scary. But we got to define diversity. Man, it's getting good here with uh, Brother Jacoy. Tell us uh, what inspired you to run for uh, the office. Knowing that you would be the youngest, knowing that you were a Black male, what, what inspired you to run? I was born in 1992. Black poverty was at a 21% rate. It's 2020. Black poverty is now at a 35% rate. Black kids in Louisville, 45% of them live in poverty. Black people in Louisville represent 78% of homelessness in the city of Louisville, unsheltered homelessness. We represent 58% of school suspensions and expulsions. Meanwhile, we're about 23% of the population. And when you look at our, our government, our Metro Council, we got six Black folk on Metro Council. Mostly elders, mostly, I think we got one millennial. Maybe she's even Gen X, but the rest of them, I would say, are boomers. When you look at those Black folk on Metro Council, my first question is, 
what happened, why did it happen, and how do we keep it from happening again? And you can apply pressure to the politicians or you can be a politician. I decide I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to show them how it's done. Somebody has to leave from the front, man. We appreciate your leadership. Indeed. You are doing one of the greatest deeds and I want to give you credit for in the public because they say black men don't love black women. Black men mistreat black women. Black men and black, they do all the things to divide us that they can. Now, our sister, Breonna Taylor, was murdered and you have been at the forefront of demanding justice for her. Not one time, not two time, not when the cameras were on, not when um, reporters were present, but you've been consistent in demanding justice for our sister. Where are we at with the case and what can people do to help? Before I talk about the specifics of Breonna Taylor, I'll, I'll zoom out and say Louisville Metro Police Department was founded in the 1820s. It was solely created to patrol slaves, maintain, regulate the slave population. You fast forward 100 years after that, in the 1920s, we had our first black policeman. His name was William Woods. He was killed in the line of duty for mistaken identity by a white drug addict. 100 years after that, you got Breonna Taylor being killed for really the same type of situation. Uh, alleged drug involvement, identity was questionable. So police are doing what they've been doing for centuries. Breonna Taylor is a prime example of, I wouldn't even call it failure of government because- It did what it was supposed to. Exactly. And, and it's disturbing to think that her home, her door was kicked in, tied to a number of other properties that had their doors kicked in because our government wants to buy up a block in my neighborhood or that Brianna was disposable. I mean, we had hundreds of millions of indigenous and black people killed in this country for land. And our government wants us to expect they wouldn't kill Breonna Taylor to buy a block. The case as it sits now, there were seven officers on the scene. Three are the ones that we see online quite a bit. And these three officers weren't the only ones there. They claim they didn't have body cam footage, but LMPD has yet to respond on whether or not the other officers, the other four, had body cam footage or any footage from the officers that showed up afterwards. That case was so disturbing. When the shooting was taking place, neighbors were calling the police saying, come, somebody's shooting us up, not realizing that was the police shooting them. And the police had the audacity to ask Brianna's mama if anybody would have wanted to hurt her when they hurt her being very wishy-washy and confusing about the details and hiding details. And of course, our city government didn't share anything with us until it became national news. And what hurts about the case as it stands now, Daniel Cameron's black. And he's homies with Donald Trump, homies with Mitch McConnell. He's a puppet. Daniel Cameron, who, who is that? He's the, the attorney general of the state of Kentucky, and he's the one that decides on if we charge these officers. I wish we had more time to get into some of the. I know. We're going to do a part two. We're going to do a part two and a part three. On the part two and part three, we're going to be looking forward to hearing from you back about this uh, Russell resistance that uh, it looks like you have some solutions oh, to some yeah. problems. Uh -huh. We're going to hear about what solutions you're bringing. We know that there's uh, lots of problems. We talked about the problems, but we want 
to hear about the solutions. We also want to hear about this reparations. You talk a lot about ADOS. I have to uh, uh, be upfront and say that uh, I'm a member of Encobra mm -hmm. National Coalitions for Black uh, Blacks for Reparations in America. So clearly, we both support reparations. We want to hear about that great work that you're doing. We are uh, supporting your work. Everybody, go to uh, Jacory author.com yeah, yeah. check our brother out support his campaign support his work this is one of our upcoming leaders if you uh support democracy and you support the continuous of this government well let's look at jacory author for uh governor of kentucky uh. in the united states and any other offices that are are available because if we say that we're a part of this government, then we have every opportunity to serve at every level. Thank you, right. Brother Jacory. Man, it's been a blessing and honor, and we look forward to you. God bless the children. God bless uh, West End, Louisville, Kentucky, and we're going to continue to build. I love you. I'll talk to you yeah. soon, okay? Have a good one. Peace, family. Peace. Brothers and sisters, friends and family, community members, I think you got your cup fooled today. I think you got all that you were looking for today. We want to thank you again for tuning in to the No Justice, No Peace podcast with Racial Justice Now. I'm your co-host, H.A. Jabbar, and our co-host, Carolyn Lowry. We are wishing you the best, sending you love, sending you inspiration, sending you joy as we cover all things education justice. So go to the website rjndmv.org for more information. You can contact us as admin at rjndmv.org and we are excited, excited, excited to continue this work to get another episode going, part two with the great Jacory author. Go to his website. As they say, go ahead and Google him. This young man is doing great things and we want to support him in all his great endeavors as he continues to serve our people. So blessings from the No Justice, No Peace podcast. I'm AJ Jabbar. This is uh, Carolyn Lowry, project director from RJNDMV, signing off, wishing you the best. Peace and blessings. I'm a yelling with my fist up in the air. I love my dark skin and my nappy hair. Crooked politicians see them everywhere. Bump 45, we know that he don't care. Bump you to the system, cause y'all never treat us equal. Bump you dirty cops, why y'all killing all my people? Bump you all the lies in the history they teach you. Bump you a black mind is a weapon and it's lethal. Bump you if you don't like it, cause this is the revolution. Bump you I can take a knee, it's in the constitution. Bump you mouth rush, more was sculpted by the clan. Bump you with my fist up, I'm screaming, bump the Man. I want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. Bump you, bump you, bump him and her too. I want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance. Want my freedom, my justice, my future filled with substance.